welcome to the Wine Beat Podcast. I'm your host, Craig. The Wine Beat is an exploration of the world's great wines and great wine regions and great winemakers, and we travel the world to bring you to these places and to these people. Lately, as you know, we've been on a four-stop road trip along the Loire Valley from west to east, and now we're on our fourth and final visit. We're with Paul Pisani Ferry at Chateau de Target in Saumur. If you've tuned into the previous podcasts in our Loire Valley road trip, you know we've explored the Muscadet region near Nantes, where we met the charismatic young winemaker Pierre-Henri Gadet. He's putting Sèvres et Maine on the map in terms of Muscadet wines. We've also met the singular, innovative Jacques Blow and his son Jean-Philippe in Mont-Louis-sur-Loire to hear how they have brought tremendous new energy to the Chenin Blanc wines of that region and Vouvray. And then in the most recent of our podcasts, we were drinking the robust and textured Cabernet Franc wines of Chinon while we visited with Mathieu Baudry of Domaine Bernard Baudry. And now we're rounding it all off at the majestic Chateau de Target in Parnay, uh, the village of Parnay in Saumur. You're going to enjoy Paul Pisani Ferry telling you about his family story and his own story. Here's a young man who discovered suddenly and to his own surprise and, and delight, I guess, that he actually loved the family winemaking business. And now, as you're about to hear, he is all in. Here's the animated and passionate Paul Pisani Ferry of Chateau de Target in the Saumur wine region. Let's go. I'm here with Paul Pisani Ferry of Chateau de Target in Parnay. Uh, we're very close to Saumur. Uh, Paul's going to tell us about the geography. Paul, thank you very much for coming and joining me on the Wine Beat. Well, thank you for coming. Um, we're sitting in the chateau. We've got limestone cliffs on, on, on one side of us in the room because this chateau um, and the buildings are basically built right against the limestone cliffs. And uh, Paul's going to tell us about that because that's an amazing feature of this part of the valley. Maybe, maybe the best place to start is about the family and the chateau, uh, and a little bit on the history. Um, so, Paul, please. Okay, so yeah, this the the history of the of of our family in Target started uh, at the latest in 1655, and I say at the latest because we don't actually know when it started. We just know that that my great great grandfather ancestor uh, gave this place to his daughter in 1655, so that would be uh, 364 years ago, and since then it's stayed in the family. And the fact is, my so my ancestor was named De Target. And so that, was, that is why there's the name Chateau de Target. But then it passed through a lot of ladies, so losing the name uh, as ladies owned the place. So my, my great-great-grandmother uh, married the Alain, so it was Alain Target for some time. And then they mar- uh, the lady Alain Target uh, married the Ferry, so it was the Ferry family. And then I'm Paul Pisani Ferry because I still keep the Ferry in my name and we still have a cuvee named Cuvée Ferry, actually. So, uh, yeah, it was always in the family. And at, be- at the beginning, it was just um, holes in the rock for quarries that were dug just to take the stone and build uh, all sorts of buildings around here and a little house that was uh, most mostly a hunting lodge uh, that was definitely not a chateau. And um, every generation of my family that was here started to make it better. So one of my ancestors built two towers uh, on the Loire side, and then another one one century after 
uh, built two other towers and ta-da, it was a chateau. And it was every, every generation made it bigger or better or refined it. And that's so that's why now we have this chateau. Yeah, and it's fascinating uh, because it's quite a spectacular chateau. It looks uh, very regal and, <laughs> uh, and, it, it, and it's perched up high over the valley. Uh, so it's quite impressive. Um, made of limestone. So the limestone is quarried right from the stone in the... And, exactly. And, and, and I guess we're even partly built into the side of the cliff, are we? Yes. Um, was your family always in winemaking? How long not does at all. wine back? They always loved wine, but they were not in winemaking. Actually, most of my ancestors, they were mostly in uh, politics in Paris. And they came here as a relaxing place. So there was... This was uh, a holiday place. This was a holiday place for as long as uh, we know of the family. And my father was the first winemaker from the family. So when he arrived, there was seven hectares uh, in the just above the chateau on the on the top of the cliff, and uh, seven hectares in one little place. And uh, and then when he arrived, they bought he bought with his mother seven other hectares, but one ten kilometers away, one five kilometers away, and it was more scattered. And all his life, he made it so as to regroup all the hectares around the original place to get now to twenty four hectares that are only in one block above the chateau. So each of those separate blocks that were separated by uh, by some distance from each other mm -hmm. have now all been joined up. Yes, we exchanged them up to have everything in the same place. To 24 hectares. To 24. Okay, so that's about uh, a little over 60 acres in yes. in terms. That's exactly the size of, a, of a family properties in France. That's a, exactly the medium. The medium is 24.5 hectares. Yes. It seems quite large for a, for a vineyard property. It is good because you can be uh, very... Um, uh, you can really work yourself with your own material and as well you can still keep control on the vines and it's not a big company that you have to have one guy for the vines one guy for the wine we control everything and we we as a family with my father we control everything and we don't have to to give some uh, responsibilities to other so that they might not make exactly the wine that we like right and was your father, how did he develop the passion for wine? How did he decide that he should grow vines on the property? My father is, uh, he's deaf of hearing. He, he couldn't hear when he was born. So he was, uh, he definitely couldn't go into the family passion that was politics. Ah, and okay. uh, and he, he was really very interested in, uh, in uh, um, uh, biology, in uh, the plants, in the growing, very slow growing of the plants and how you can make it better. So the aim was to, to really make a, to, so he started uh, studying uh, viticulture and all the agronomy science. And then he was, uh, just after the, the end of his studies, he had the, the opportunity, of course, to come here and, uh, and take care of Target. So that's what he did. That's a, quite a massive change from the family business of politics <laughs> it to is. becoming a farmer. It is, but it was the, actually the most useful help for politics because you can really do lots with bottles right. <laughs> in right. politics. Right. So that's your father. He took up farming uh, instead of politics. And uh, now it's the second generation. You're working here. And uh, are you passionate about the agricultural side, about the winemaking side? What is it that's uh, exciting about this winery to you? At the beginning, nothing. I just what I wanted is to keep the the family heritage, and I was not passionate passionate about the the vines, and I was not. I didn't like wine before I was twenty or twenty three years old. I didn't start really liking wine, and uh, so it was just I wanted. I was sure I wanted to keep 
the heritage. That was the first. In terms of the property, the chateau. Yes, the... I wanted to to have to have this this thing that is bigger than than me or bigger than my father. It's just it's a, it's a, a, a big heritage from generations ago, and I don't want to to be the one to say, oh no, I don't care, and then regret it for the rest of my life. And so I started with most of this responsibility and not really a passion about it, uh, to be frank, and uh, started studying um, more the business side of winemaking. And uh, my father sent me here there because he, since he was deaf, he couldn't really develop that part. It was very hard of him uh, to do this. So he sent me to business school management and to be, um, to, to have this double uh, uh, capability with him. And to, so I did that and then I started drinking wine there and I started liking more and more. And then I say, okay, away I, from the chateau. Exactly. As soon as I went out, I started drinking wine when I was right. uh, with my friends. Ah, and that's I, typical, right? <laughs> you, you have to get away from home to discover how great How beautiful is. it is. Yes. Mm. And it, it was, and that's, that's the start of how I liked wine first. So I, I, I started developing this liking, liking of wine. And then I wanted to know how it's made. So I went to the precedent uh, step, which is uh, winemaking. And so I traveled a lot for winemaking reasons. So I went first to uh, the US, uh, to the Sonoma Valley, uh, to work with Verité, which is a, a great winery. My godfather is uh, the winemaker there. So I started working yeah, there. Yeah. Uh, horrible. I was 20 and a half. I couldn't drink a drop of alcohol in front of people. Right. That, was <laughs> that was horrible. But Strange still. drinking laws in the US. Exactly. But still, I learned a lot. I, I really learned a lot about Did you making. work a, a harvest uh, vintage? Uh, uh, just before harvest. Okay. Prepared everything in the in the shed for harvest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, was, I was only there for two months and then uh, came back to France. Uh, then I went to Argentina to work in uh, Familia Sucardi's vineyard uh, in Mendoza. Ah, wow. Uh, huge property, but with a big R&D department. So I worked inside this R&D department where they make uh, what we call micro vinifications yeah. of less than uh, 10 hectoliters. Isn't that cool? That's it was beautiful to discover so you're making lots of wines, making lots of small batches of wines, uh, exactly. experimenting. Uh, Zucardi is a very well-known uh, winemaking name uh, yes. from Argentina. What was the name of the particular winery where you were working? In Zucardi? It, yeah. it was uh, for the, the Coup, uh, Zucardi Coup, which is one of the brands of Zucardi. Okay. And, uh, and uh, Emma, which is uh, one of the top-end wines, and Tito. We made the we made those wines. They they like to experiment with different uh, varietals mm -hmm. in the in the Zucardi's vineyard. So right. that's what we did. We experimented. Oh, see, I'm sorry. Yeah. So it was kind of in their in their head office, or I would say, or in their laboratory. In their, in uh, their yeah, mo their mostly a laboratory. Yeah. Yes, their experimental mm -hmm. with uh, lots cellars. of small tanks. That was the inter interesting part. Fantastic! What great experience it was. And completely how long did you stay in Argentina? Uh, for eight months. Eight months, so wor started working. Bef I arrived before harvest, so I started working in their restaurants, uh, helping the chef sommelier mm -hmm. there. And then I went to the to the winemaking facilities, and then stayed again for two and a half months, uh, going to Chile and Argentina to discover uh, vineyards and and just taste wines. Went through over forty winemaking <laughs> places, right? Uh, Thirty, but I guess forty, but I guess sorry. Nice experience. It was a beautiful part of the world. It was it was really great to discover. So they they don't have a uh, fear of trying, they try everything, which was 
kind of the opposite of what we saw for some times in France. Now in France, everyone's trying again. And there's not only tradition. There is the tradition, but there's also a lot of experimenting part. But for some times, when my father started, it was mostly you follow the cahier des charges, the requisitions, and that's it. You don't invent, you don't experiment. And that's what I loved there. And, uh, and then I came back here uh, to do the harvest uh, in Target and in Saint-Nicolas-de-Bourgueil at another uh, winery that's called uh, Frédéric Mabilo. Mm -hmm. And then again, went to South Africa to, to change the perspective, to change to uh, Rad's Family Wines, who own only Cabernet Franc and Chenin. And I wanted to start specializing ah, in those isn't two. Ah, that fascinating that you went to Rat's in South Africa where they do Chenin Blanc and Cabernet Franc, the, the same varieties that are... That was the most important things to me because yeah, I wanted to really experiment with those varieties which are really different from the rest of the of what I studied before, Malbec and everything. I, I liked it, but I couldn't reproduce what I learned here. Uh, and so there, and they have a completely different approach on wine as well, on Cabernet Franc, which has to be a lot more massive there because of all the sun they get. And uh, But still, they manage to keep uh, some freshness. In Rats, that's their spe specialty, to keep the freshness, keep the finesse in the wines. Even if they're bigger, bolder, you still have a, a, a nice, light finish. And uh, I learned a lot over there. And again, winery and after winery, just after harvest, it was... Uh, maybe 15 wineries in, in, in two, two weeks, and then I flew back home. Yeah, amazing experience. So hopping between the Northern Hemisphere and the Southern Hemisphere. Yes. And um, and that was a har one harvest at Rats? Yes. Fifteen. I'm jealous of your experience. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and it's so cool that you were working with Chenin Blanc and, and Cabernet Franc. Oh, that brings us back here. So yes. we should talk about the... Um, the wines that you make, uh, the varieties that you grow. We're in a famous place in terms of uh, Chenin Blanc, the Sumer region. I, mean, I think you're going to tell us about some of the other appellations that are mm -hmm. here. So there's this this big appellation called Saumur, which is, uh, there is more than 400 winemakers inside this appellation. And you can make Saumur rouge, uh, so reds, whites, rosé, and sparkling. And uh, we make all of those. Uh, except the Saumur, Saumur Rouge, because we have a smaller appellation. We, we have all our vines in, into this smaller appellation that is called Saumur Champigny, that got very famous uh, with time. And uh, so we have, uh, the Saumur Champigny is only nine villages, Saumur plus eight others, including Pardet, where we are. And, uh, and so this is places where you have more uh, limestone and less uh, soil before you hit the hard limestone. Uh, you don't want to have, you, you want to have the roots of the vines connecting with the limestone to get, again, more structure at the, in, the, in the mouth and at the end more finesse, more refinement. So there's the larger Saumur AOC, <laughs> yes. uh, where the soils will tend to be maybe deeper, I guess, and more rich uh, before you hit limestone. Exactly. So what, what uh, characterizes Saumur Champigny and what sets it apart is that it's less soil, more limestone. Exactly. Okay, so the vines are getting the limestone effect. Exactly. And you can still make white wine with Chenin in the middle of Saumur Champigny, but it won't be called Saumur Champigny. Saumur Champigny is just an appellation for reds. And uh, so we produce Saumur Brut, sparkling, and Saumur Blanc, white wine, uh, in the middle of Saumur Champigny, but it's still called Saumur Blanc or Saumur Brut. And this is what you have in your glass here. So we are drinking... Les Frenettes. Uh, Les Frenettes. Frenettes was the name of my grandmother, the mother of my father, who owned the chateau before. 
and uh, this is a wine that is made really on the very side of the cliff where you have uh, 25 to uh, 40 or 50 centimeters of, of clay before hitting the hard limestone. So I do not know how that make in inches, but that's, I think, 10 to 20 inches, yeah, basically. Like that. yep, yep. Uh, so that's absolutely nothing, no place for the roots to develop. But the vine will react with a completely different strategy. It will start to make less uh, production, less quantity of children, less pips, and protect them better with thicker skins, with uh, more uh, more taste to it, so that animals such as ourselves will be uh, 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 will want to take those grapes first. And so that's the aim of the vine. It will produce instead of the 60 hectoliters per hectare uh, that we have the right to produce, we will go to 30 or 35, so half of it. But then you have a lot more concentration and a lot more structure. But that's the magic of the Chenin. You always have this light acidity, this freshness to it that never makes it a heavy wine. And so this is what you're tasting now. It's uh, so 100% Chenin, 100% on those clean limestone soils with very, very little place for the roots. Saumur Blanc. Saumur Blanc. We're drinking it now, just in case you're wondering why there's a gap in the talking. That's a marvelous wine. Well, it's beautiful. It's um, very big, rich fruit flavors, but tons of acidity, as you say. So it's very bright. Um, it ho it ho holds, holds it together quite nicely in a in a package in, in terms of the fruit and the richness, but also the very structured acidity. That, that's that's the aim. With this wine, you, when you smell it, you say, oh, that's a heavy wine. That's something is going to be very big in the mouth. And am I going to be able to drink the whole bottle with my friend here? And at the end, the, the finish is always so fresh and uh, with this little um, uh, saltiness, maybe, at the end. Salinity, that, yeah. Salinity, yeah, yes, yeah. thank you. Uh, that makes you want to uh, try more, try another glass. And at the end, you always get to the bottom of the bottle. So that's the good thing. Beautiful Chenin Blanc. <laughs> thank you. And how does it compare to a, a South African Chenin Blanc? Very... Uh, very different. That's the beauty of Chenin, is uh, contrary to Cabernet Franc, which is which has a bit, very big identity. Uh, Chenin has its own identity, but very very different depending on the type of soil you put it on. And so in uh, South Africa, they have uh, where I worked with Prats, they have lots of different types of soil, and that's the beauty of it as well because he. Uh, is completely the opposite of us, where we have everything in the same place, and one and one only uh, type of soil. He has lots of blocks, very separate from one another. Uh, he would go more on uh, on dolomite, which is uh, similar to granite. It's uh, very compact stones, and then he will go onto magmatic stones, and he will have completely different expressions of Chenin, and then he will decide of the blending of those together. Right. Yep. We don't have this possibility because we have everything on the same place. So it's, it's a, a single vineyard. A single vineyard. Um, so Chenin Blanc is a chameleon, and we've, I've heard that, that it, it, it expresses itself quite differently depending Definitely. where it comes from. And depending on the method as well, because with Chenin Blanc, we managed to make a sparkling wine, a dry white, and a completely sweet wine that is very, very sweet, but again, keeping this, this freshness, this acidity, you never get bored of the sweetness of the wine. Even when you have 100 grams of, of sugar per liter, it still stays fresh at the, at the end of the mouth. This Sommer Blanc, that's, uh, this still wine that we're drinking, is quite dry. 
not completely complete. There's a little bit of a touch of um, not sweetness isn't the right word, but it's got that maybe that little this bit of roundness. Richness, the roundness. I think. And uh, uh, one gram, one gram residual this yeah. year. So it's it's dry and it's very fresh and very uh, refreshing. Um, what about the sparkling? Is it dry? Do you make yes. a dry sparkling? Uh, so we still have we we add just a little bit of sugar at the at the end just before expedition. So that's why it's a brut and not an extra brut. Uh, we what we do is we put uh, 70% of Chenin and 30% of Cabernet Franc. The Chenin is so as we said before very acidic, very tense, and uh, and uh, of course with the sparkling uh, method, with the traditional method, it adds the bubble, which is also a bit aggressive to the mouth. So this is what we like. But if you have all the acidity of the Chenin plus all the bubbles, you have a bit too much aggressivity in the mouth. And then the technique is to add a bit of sugar or to leave a bit of sugar, depending on the on the way you make your wine, uh, with uh, in order to soften this. And we don't like to add too much sugar. So what we do instead of putting uh, eight to 10 grams of sugar, we put this, this blending of 70% uh, Chenin and 30% Cabernet Franc. And this helps us a lot to get this uh, roundness in the beginning of the mouth. This is uh, because of the Cabernet Franc, this fruitiness in the beginning of the mouth. And then there's the length, then the Chenin takes over. And then we put two and a half grams of sugar instead of eight or 10. Mm. And you get to the same kind of effect, the sweetness in the mouth, this, this impression of sweetness, because there's almost no sugar. Um, and so you're using the traditional method, the champagne method. Exactly. We, can't, we can't call it the champagne method, but it's the traditional yes. method. Exactly. Um, I was with Jackie Blow and his son Jean-Philippe uh, yesterday. Yes. And they make theirs in the method ancestral. Yes. So they don't uh, have the second fermentation in the bottle. But yours is the second fermentation in the bottle. Yes, they continue the first fermentation in the bottle, basically. And that's what we try with, uh, 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 right now, we're trying this with a sparkling rosé as well. Ah, really? So you're experimenting. Is it an experiment or is this a yes. product you've already... Well, I want to produce it, but for now it's not finished. So okay, okay. I hope everything it's, will go well. It's in progress. <laughs> exactly. It's in progress. Interesting. So that'll be method an ancestral. Exactly. Uh, in other words, the the uh, wine is bottled before the fermentation is complete, and that's why you have some... Mm -hmm. bubbles and, and, and that sort of thing. Okay, that's really cool. So that's the rosé. Um, the traditional method, uh, the sparkling that you do uh, in the traditional method, is it AOC saumur? Yes. It's not a cremant? No. So people might be familiar with cremant de Loire. There's mm -hmm. some very, very good sparklings made under the cremant de Loire name. Uh, but yours is AOC. Yes. Uh, and that's because we're very chauvinistic. Ah, okay. uh, we have all our blocks in just one tiny spot ah, okay. in the middle of Saumur region. And so we want to be as precise as possible with the Saumur yeah, appellation. Crément de Loire, of course, is a lot bigger. Yeah. And uh, there's three main differences between those two uh, AOC. The Saumur is uh, more restrictive in the area. So that's difference number one. Saumur has less yield authorized. Uh, so you have to be a little bit more concentrated for Saumur than for uh, than for Crémant de Loire. That's approximately a, a 15% difference. Okay. And uh, But the best thing with Crémant is that you have to harvest by hand. And this is what we do as well. We respect this part of the Crémant uh, AOC, but we, we still call it Saumur. Okay. Uh, the fact of harvesting by hand on the sparkling changes everything. It makes it uh, a lot more refined. You have to put less sulfur, less protective on the whites, so you have less oxidation. It's uh, it's way better for the sparkling, and we do harvest by hand for this one. Yeah. 
Well, there's a whole lesson in sparkling wines that we've had, so all compressed in just a few minutes. Uh, if we had more time, we'd go into more depth. So we've talked about the um, uh, the Chenin Blanc wine, the still wine, the Saumur Blanc, as well as the sparkling. Uh, we touched on the sparkling rosé. Do you do a still rosé? I do, yes. It's called Saumur Rosé, or La Rose de Target. It's, uh, we do it with a, it's a press rosé. So there's two ways of making rosé, the saigné way and the press way. We do the press because we want to make exactly the rosé as precisely as we can. So we do the, this, this method with uh, harvesting, putting everything in the press directly and closing the press for, depending on the year, between five and eight hours. And then when it's ready, when it gets to the nice, uh, really light pink color that we want, and uh, to get also the structure of the tannins of this very small uh, length maceration, then we get to uh, the rosé that we want. So we press it directly, put the, the juice on in the tank and wait for fermentation to happen. 100% Cabernet Franc. 100%. And uh, just enough skin contact to give it a nice rosé color and a bit of rosé characteristic. Exactly. So it still has to be wine. So it needs to have, for the rosé, it, it won't get to this, this intensity if you don't give it a bit of skin contact. Yeah, yeah. And now we come all the way back to Cabernet Franc, uh, which is uh, maybe the, the wine that this region is most famous for. So uh, we've touched on it, but tell me a little bit about your Cabernet Franc. So Cabernet Franc is a very, very peculiar grape. It, there's not lots of places where it can grow well alone. In lots of places, it is used in, in blending, but when it can uh, be used as 100% Cabernet Franc, it's very interesting. And there is, so in South Africa, that you can make that. Uh, in Bordeaux, they tried sometimes, but you know, always blending it a bit with Merlot makes it a lot smoother there. Here we have the cool climate that makes it not as harsh or as uh, alcoholic as it can be some places. And then you keep still always this freshness, this... Uh, a bit of spiciness to it, and this freshness that makes it uh, a wine that you could drink with about anything. Just like fish, some on some light years, you can drink the Saumur Champigny with fish, you can have it as an aperitif, or you can have it with dessert. There is a lot and lots of, of, uh, of meals that you can pair Saumur Champigny with. And it's because it's very fresh, very easy to, it's an easy to share wine. So we're having the, um, the 2016 uh, Chateau de Target, Saumur Champigny. Exactly, that's our tradition cuvée. And uh, so 100% Cabernet Franc. We, we don't want to blend too much. We want to keep the identity in our wines. And so 100% Cabernet Franc here. With uh, places, blocks that have mostly between 90 centimeters and uh, 70 centimeters of clay before hitting the hard limestone. What a lovely wine. It's uh, This is delicious. It's, it's very fruit-driven, I would say. But it's not sort of mono-dimensional. It's very complex. Well, thank you. That's the... Aromas, lots of structure. Mm -hmm. Herbal notes for sure. Yes, uh, typical. But on the mouth, it's really soft and, and delicious. Well, thank you very much. That's 2016, so that's the first year I worked with my father uh, at 100% together. Mm. And uh, yeah, the, the, the year was very typical of Saumur Champigny, of the, the, the kind of climate we can have here. And so we, after those very bizarre years that we had in 15 uh, and 13 and 12, uh, either very hot or very rainy, making completely different wines, here we go back to the roots of what Saumur Champigny is supposed to be. And here we have just the right uh, size of, uh, 
of clay before hitting the limestone. So as the vine can produce a bit more, be a bit more comfortable on the roots and, uh, and still give this, this freshness, more freshness, more uh, lightness to the wine. But with this limestone finish that keeps the complexity, keeps the, the intensity of the end of the mouth and not make it uh, a wine that you drink and forget. You drink it and then it lingers on the mouth, on the palate. Beautiful. With the limestone. Um, listen, I know we're short of time, but I do want to ask you about this gorgeous uh, valley that mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're in. We're, we're obviously in the Loire Valley, but along the road that uh, brings you to Chateau de Tourget, you travel along a very distinctive set of limestone cliffs with houses built into the limestone with lots of caves or caves uh, and your chateau, of course, built into the limestone. So tell us about this region, about Parnay and Saumur and this limestone ridge that we're, that we're along, because it's a fascinating place. It's absolutely uh, amazing to look at all of the structures that are right into the limestone cliff. And the, the cliff was basically dug out by the, by the Loire. The Loire changing course over the thousands and millions of years uh, dug this, this, uh, this cliff. So it's basically 25 meters where, where we're standing here. There's uh, 12 meters under the chateau and 12 meters on top of the chateau uh, to, to get the, the really the big size of the, this vertical cliff. And, uh, and so that was all naturally dug by the Loire. And, uh, and then people starting, started getting interested in the stone itself, uh, mostly in the 11th and 12th century, and started using this stone to build houses all around. But the fact is, you have this type of soil uh, for, for a long way. You have it for, for kilometers uh, outside in, in Saumur-Champigny Appalachian, far away from the cliff. But in the cliff was the, the easiest place to get to the stone and to get to it uh, horizontally. So with horses, you could come and get the stones, carve them perfectly and bring them out instead of pulling them up uh, on some other places. And that's why it was so rich here. And you can transport them as, as well with the Loire. So that's a, a lot of historical reasons uh, right, of for the last uh, uh, thousand years that made it so that this side of the Loire was, a, uh, was very successful in, uh, in one wine transportation and houses because it was really easy to build because you just had the rock under your hand. And, uh, and uh, yeah, that's the, uh, I could go Howard's with uh, the it history of this place. It's really beautiful and it's really striking, uh, the limestone houses. And uh, I imagine probably people were living in these limestone caves probably for, for time. Yeah, in, for in lots of times, there's lots of places where they used to hide from uh, invaders. Uh, there is uh, places where it's also always the same temperature. It's very fresh. That's where we store all the wines when once they're in bottle. But for so for three hundred and fifty years before my father arrived, uh, there was uh, there was we used to make the wine in the caves, and there's still no press being there, and uh, the temperature being so leveled that you can definitely make the wine without problems of fermentation, without too much heating. Amazing! What an absolutely gorgeous place. It was so nice of you to have me come in for the conversation. I love the the chateau and the location. Thank you very much. Beautiful wines. <laughs> Thank you very much, Paul. Thank you, Craig. And with that, we wrap up our Loire Valley podcasting road trip and our tour of these four wonderful wineries. And I think it's a fitting end to the trip with Paul Pizanet Ferry. There's been a theme of youthful energy and innovation in these podcasts. Uh, you can see the love of tradition in each and every one of these conversations, the love of the tradition, the history, 
but and the craft, but also a deep dedication to extracting the very best from the vineyards of the region, and often by its bringing new thinking and new attention to detail and new viticultural practices and all that sort of stuff. So um, again, thank you to Paul Pizani Ferry for the wonderful visit to Chateau de Target and also to the other hosts in the three previous podcasts, to uh, Jean-Philippe and Jackie Blow, to Mathieu Baudry at, uh, at, at Domaine Bernard Baudry, and of course to Pierre-Henri Gadet and for the fabulous visit to Savoie-Maine. Um, and thank you to all of you for listening in. Come and visit us, www.thewinebeat.com. There's also lots of other great content on the website from the Loire. There's uh, articles on Cremant de Loire, the great Cremant sparkling wines uh, from the Loire. There's an article on Chinon. There's an article on the Muscadet wine region. So there's lots there and lots of other great content from all over the wine world. So thank you very much again. And we'll talk to you soon on the wine beat. That's it. Bye. You can talk about your whiskey. You can talk about your beer. You're looking for the kind of talk. You ain't gonna find it here on